taking a break from social media. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pi or Pi Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And I'm Kendall Miller. Today I learned about bike camper trailers, and my entire mm-hmm. life plan has changed. <sighs> Wow. Today on the show, we are talking with Mushtaba Hosseini, Senior Solutions Architect at Nanometric Seismic Monitoring Solutions. Thank you for being on the show with us today. Yeah, welcome. Thank you, and Kendall. Thank you. Well, so let's dive in, Mushtaba. Tell us about uh, your background, because we we have your LinkedIn up, and we see Professor, and we have questions, and uh, we want to know how you got to where you are today. Further back than that, though. (laughs) How did you get started? Sure. One of the first questions that I normally get asked in interviews is, why didn't I stay in, in the universities? I, I, I got my PhD in electrical engineering, and uh, that's typically one, one uh, sort of career path is to stay and teach. And I, my answer is, I just wanted to uh, get things in the hands of customers. Mm-hmm. And from the very beginning, I was very passionate about that. So I saw that the res- more research-oriented uh, focus of the university didn't allow me to uh, get things in the hands of people uh, that actually solve their problems. And so I got into uh, in the industry. However, uh, there is this very nice way that you can still keep in touch with the university through uh, being an adjunct professor. And so it's uh, in Canada, at least it's not a paid position. You just, you're basically all, uh, volunteering your time uh, to work with the university, supervise students and uh, kind of give them ideas on what they could work uh, on and what is the industry looking for. And so that's where that sort of tie-in comes in back into uh, being a professor. I I think it's a a paid thing in the States, but it's like often such insignificant money. I wonder if just going to volunteer wouldn't have a a better turnout. That's, that's, that's interesting, (laughs) but it's uh, completely not paid. Yeah. So you got to, you got to continue to change people's hearts and minds and also continue to make products. I think that's a great combo. Yeah. Were you, were you working for companies before you got that master's and the PhD? Uh, no, no. I got a job very, very close to the end of, of my PhD. And so I just accelerated writing things up so I could go and work. And from then on, I just uh, kept in touch with the university with, with certain research labs. And it ended up that at uh, some of the companies I worked at, if we uh, came up uh, against a problem that was too difficult, or we just didn't have the uh, either the funds or the timelines to tackle them, I could kind of go back to university and say, hey, you know, our company's got this problem. Uh, I would love to kind of provide that direction, maybe supervise some master's or PhD students while they work on this problem. And from the university's point of view, they're working on something that is industry relevant. And that has really worked out uh, in the past. I haven't done it in the last couple of years, but when the opportunity comes, it's it's a really nice balance between research and industrial output. Okay, so go back and tell us a little bit about some of those early roles. Like, what what were your what was your first gig in tech, and or if it wasn't in tech before that, what what got you started down the path that's got you to where you are today? I started as a, a software developer, embedded software developer in a, in a little startup. And at the time, this is way before iPhone uh, came out, we were, we were making a semiconductor chip that did video processing on Samsung phones. So our customer was Samsung, and uh, this was my first, uh, my first job and really my first experience with the go, go, go culture of, uh, of I, 
guess both South Korea and, and Japan. So it came as a huge shock from uh, someone in Canada. We don't have the same work culture, but uh, we were working with Samsung and we were visiting Samsung and to see them work, you know, 16 hour days and then still go out uh, after that uh, for team dinners and still be demanded to work on weekend was an absolute shock as a as a first time employee of a company. Uh, <laughs> was this flash video back then? Uh, these were, no, they were, they were still MPEG-4 videos uh, that you were recording on your phone. But uh, at the time, they, you know, uh, you would build, you would kind of buy a chip uh, to, to be on your phone just for this purpose. Later on, when Apple came, they sort of did everything themselves. And yeah. that's been the model for, for everybody else. But this is before then. So this was for encoding uh, videos that you were shooting with your phone, not for playing back videos off the internet that had been encoded elsewhere. Not for deep. Uh, it's actually both, both okay. recording and playback. At the time, uh, basically, let's say the, the, the phones in Canada and the US, you, you know, there wasn't much uh, data. Uh, but in South Korea, you you could you could play back videos you were getting back. So the phones that we were making were not for the North American market; they were for uh, South Korea. Okay. And so playback of video at the time, you know, uh, those resolutions now would just look like thumbnails. But at the time, it was revolutionary to play, uh, you know, any video that you downloaded on your phone, sure. um, and that's why you needed a, a you know, dedicated hardware to do that. Well, and then talk about that 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 crazy culture, you know, uh, that, well, compared for you, what was a crazy culture of just, just long hours and such where, I mean, do you look back on that as something that shaped your opinions that you should be working that hard or that shaped your opinions that you don't need to work that hard to be productive? Or how do you, how do you sort of see that? Yeah. Uh, I didn't get uh, Rachel's question. Sorry. Oh, the same. I'm sorry. I'm always talking over Kendall and I apologize. Um, uh, I was wondering, that was the question I was going to ask too, is how, was this formative? Were you expected to work like that as well? Um, and if so, how did you handle it? Uh, we, we were expected both by the customer and our management to work that way. And I have to say that uh, I did not handle it very well. I fought extremely hard to um, basically stay within the working hours. So even when we were in Korea, after five or six o'clock, I would essentially uh, stop working, uh, much to the frustration of my manager at the time. And uh, if, if I'm allowed to, to, to say an anecdote here, um, I spent the rest of the time. So you might say, you know, what did you do while your team was sort of stuck, still working? Getting drunk uh, with their coworkers. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing was they, they had a system where it was very difficult for you to leave the Samsung campus uh, before they sort of allowed you to, to leave. And so here I was, I refused to work past five o'clock and my team was going to stay until nine o'clock. So I had four hours of my time. And what I was able to invest my time in was find ways uh, where I could get out of the campus. Uh, so whether it was forging documents, uh, being able to hack things so that uh, I could get authorization to leave. And so after a few days, you know, four hours a day, I was able to uh, essentially find a way that not only I could leave at any time I wanted, uh, but I could forge documents where others could leave. I'm and literally I, sitting here with my mouth open. Like you had to yeah. have a, a, a pass to get out of the work campus. 
Uh, that's right. You had to have a doctor's note? Like, what the hell? That is exactly the case. You, you would amazing. enter the, the campus and they would sort of give you um, some paperwork. And to leave, you had to get inspected in terms of, you know, what's on your laptop. Do you have USB keys and so on and so forth? Mm. And you couldn't leave. They actually had two layers of security, just like airport. Uh, you couldn't leave without such paperwork. And so I learned ways of being able to smuggle laptops uh, out without such authorization and, uh, and the, uh, the paperwork. And uh, the funny part of this was uh, initially my manager was absolutely horrified and he thought we would get in serious trouble by Samsung security. And uh, at some point, uh, one night he actually lost his authorization and he would have had to sort of stay oh, very see. late and he was begging I see where this is going documents uh-huh. <laughs> so he took him out <laughs> <laughs> this is like a Dungeons and Dragons game <laughs> yeah I mean it feels like you learned video encryption and jailbreak skills that first you know job which is a little unusual <laughs> wow that's how it turned out because I I had time on my hand which I wasn't going to put into work so I figured out ways to get around the city Uh, and you know it it paid off because I could actually get out earlier and rest and also even be able to get food because the other problem was on campus it was only cafeteria food uh, Mm. and it was not easy to, to to get food from outside so so was there any fallout from you doing this did any did you ever get caught how did this job end uh, no, no, it was very happy ending. I was able to extend my uh, uh, my services to other workers. Uh, with <laughs> you Robin Hood. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. I, I ended up being a, a popular person in my team because I could I could uh, get people out if they needed rest and they needed uh, documentation. And no, it, it it all worked out well. We still delivered the project and everything was fine because wow. I did learn that it's not about the number of hours that you work it's really how effective you are and uh, you know at the end that's that's all i asked my manager i said you know tell me what you want delivered and not the number of hours i put in you'll have it done and it's in my interest to do that in the fewest number of hours that uh uh, that that i can and leaving the rest for me so that works out the project yeah well so one of your key so i mean again to go back to this like you did learn video encryption but the other key takeaway you took from this role was essentially kind of how to work the system, right? Or, or where in the system you need to push back. Like, I feel like it's actually a pretty useful skill that early in your career to find out you can fight the system. Or it, it sounds like you, you kind of inherently had that skill. And I, I think that took me 10 years into my career to realize I could push back on things. Yeah, it's so okay. I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, is this something that stuck with you that like, hang on a second, I can question everything? I mean, it's a very... It's a very Western mindset uh, in the middle of a, you know, Eastern company. Yeah. Has this cycle repeated itself in your, in your subsequent uh, gigs? That, that's, it. that's really actually um, insightful uh, because it comes back to what I was learning in university. In university, there was no way I could uh, finish all the tasks and, uh, and the homework and everything if I followed everything uh, the way it was laid out. So for example, I I found out that many assignments carried very little weight. And so if you optimize to get uh, the highest mark on your exam, it actually didn't matter how much, uh, how well you did on your, on your tests, on your, on your uh, assignments. And so trying to optimize a system to get the highest outcome for the lowest amount of input. 
So I didn't have to do all the assignments and people were very surprised. They were saying, how, how do you manage to get A pluses across all, all courses? And yet you have your weekends off. That seems insane as a student. And I was saying, well, it's, it's about efficiency, right? It's not about the number of hours. So again, coming back, it was the same thing for work. It was saying, you know, if you, if you have ways of finding and fine tuning the system, it isn't about the number of hours you put in. It's finding all those inefficiencies. And it, to be honest, I mean, that's what's led me into leadership as well. So it's, it's a common theme maybe uh, throughout my career that I hadn't even thought about. <laughs> you got your own real genius. Yeah, I mean, getting to leadership actually involved learning early on that it wasn't about butts and chairs. I, I sort of want to scream this from the mountaintops and make a case study for this louder than uh, <laughs> like this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. It is. It so, so is. So many people learn the opposite lesson and end up in leadership. That's what's so fascinating about this. But, right, uh, or they don't think that getting the job done is the important part. They think it's what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. completely. Exactly, and and again, talking about sort of optimizing uh, systems effectively. I mean, the the reason why I got got into, I never thought I'd be in management. I, I thought, you know, okay, I'll be, you know, I'm the principal engineer or software architect, something, and I'm very happy. But what I realized was that uh, technology optimization and architecture optimization there is a critical component that I'm missing and that's the people. So mm. uh, the, the people actually, the people that create the architecture, that maintain it, that need to use it, they are an absolutely critical, if not the most critical component of the system. And yet as a software architect, all I'm thinking about is the, the technical the part. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. And you're, you're learning too that like, there is a point where healthy boundaries around work actually produce good work. I mean, that that people are looking at you working less and thinking, how can you possibly pr- be producing better is kind of laughable, right? Like uh, that it, it seems obvious that if you have a reasonable work balance, you're going to actually produce better results at work. But uh, apparently that was not obvious. And in terms of competitive advantage as well, I, I, you know, I, being at Samsung, they uh, they threw many many engineers at the problem. I mean, that was in some of the uh, problems that we faced. The solution was, well, let's triple the size of the team. That's not a problem for Samsung to do, mm-hmm. or I imagine for some large companies to do. Whereas from my point of view, I'm in Canada. I'm saying, you know, we we don't have the number of engineers that other countries do. Therefore, just simply throwing more people at at it, that's not going to get us a competitive advantage. But if we can do something at a speed and an effectiveness that others cannot match by simply adding resources, by simply throwing money at it, you have a competitive advantage. And again, it kind of goes back to that, okay, if the outcome is good with the least uh, amount of energy going in, you have an optimized system. But if you say, oh, to get double the, uh, the output, I need to triple the size of my team. Okay, if you have that luxury, great, but that's a very, very inefficient system. Yeah, you're not going to get thanks for that in in the in the Silicon Valley in the tech industry at all. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, and I want the record to show that this is a doctor saying this. Like mm-hmm. literally, he can write you prescriptions, so he can't be wrong. <laughs> I don't think that's how it works, Kendall. But uh, okay. <laughs> We'll just skim over that. We'll just skim over that. Well, so yeah, tell us about your next few roles. Were they similar kinds of things? And did you pick up? I mean, I feel like 
your very first gig, you learn this profound thing. What I, now your second gig needs to it needs to rise to that same bar. Is, uh, can you top this? <laughs> uh, so I guess the after two startups, I eventually did get into 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 management. And now what was great there was uh, being able to again optimize uh, systems, including including people. And like you said, looking at things and saying, you know, being able to have well-rested, well-rounded, smart uh, people that are excited uh, to be at work, does that also increase output? So instead of uh, kind of looking at it as, okay, we must have more and more people again, let's just, let's just have more people on the, uh, on staff. It allowed me to at least have a seat at the at the table to to say, well, wait a minute, we are trying to scale, but is the answer always hiring more people, or is there something else we can do, based on you know, is it the the, the structure of the of the team, is it uh, sort of the type of people that that we have working together, and so on and so forth. So that's sort of been uh, uh, the path, and since then, I guess more recently, I've moved out of R&D because again, I thought, well, I'm optimizing R&D to uh, produce the highest output, but wait a minute, if R&D is firing on all cylinders, but it doesn't help any customers, that's a, again, not a suboptimal system. Mm-hmm. So now again, I'm sort of looking at it and saying, R&D must be in, uh, in a way lockstep with the business side. And that's the role I have now is sort of sitting between business and customers, as well as R&D, and trying to make it so that they're uh, they're a better match. Okay. And so at what point did you, so you said at one point you were made a manager. How did that happen? Was it just, oh, you're, you're, you're at the top of the individual contributor track, and so now here is a promotion to management, or how did it work? Uh, strangely, no. I know that's typically how it happens. Uh, I, was, I was a software architect, and I was looking for work, and I was convinced that I was only looking for only uh, sort of software architect positions, but this uh, great job opportunity came up. It was video, which is uh, sort of, let's say my uh, domain expertise. It was local, it was a small company, but it wasn't an architect position. It was a manager position uh, of software. So it was one of those things where I said, why not? Let me, let me go for it. And I guess they took a chance on me. And uh, even though I had no prior management experience, they took a chance. And what I loved about it was, again, unlike a lot of other places, they provided training. They had oh. an external consultant come in. Oh, it was absolutely wonderful. I mean, if, if there's one thing I can say about uh, people that transition into management is uh, please, please provide some form of training uh, or mentorship because it's such a big transition. Mm-hmm. Without that, it's, uh, it's, it's just a huge learning curve and too many trials and errors. <laughs> I feel like you've been listening to the podcast because I'm always talking about that. So I'm super pleased to hear that you got that kind of training. What was it like? What, did you, what kind of training did you have? Yeah, so few places provide that. I want to hear the details. Sorry, yeah. go ahead. It was, it was mind-blowing because here I was, uh, someone who had spent a lot of time studying, again, technical systems. All of a sudden, we had a consultant come in and, uh, you know, he had courses on uh, things like situational leadership and, uh, you know, color codes and personality traits, et cetera, et cetera. And I, was, and I just realized, wait, there is this entire discipline of management <laughs> and leadership that I have not read a single book on, and yet... I am supposed to be sort of operating at a level that is, you know, at, the, at a competency level. 
uh, uh, how is this possible? Like, uh, right. now <laughs> like, are you as a nuclear engineer without any training? No. Why would? They- well, <laughs> I mean, he'd he'd had some training. I mean, you already knew not to, you know, lock people up and not let them leave. So you'd you'd come somewhere. Uh, <laughs> We're ahead of some folks, I guess. With that, ahead of a lot of the folks. Theory. I mean, a lot of that again was trial and error. You can you can imagine. I sure. see uh, learning by bad example, right? Like seeing uh, meetings that had just been absolute disasters and saying, "Hmm, that did not go well." Uh, you know, why? As opposed to reading people that have spent their entire life and career uh, studying communication, uh, leadership, uh, engagement, and just it mm-hmm. opened up this whole new world of, of unknown that I now needed to very quickly ramp up on, uh, you know, whether it was books, you know, mentorships. So I was very quickly realizing I need mentors. I need people that have gone through this that I need to mm-hmm. sit down with and say, you know, I want to do X, Y, Z. Is this going to help? Is, have you done this? Does this make sense? And for them to say, no, 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 no. That is a knee-jerk reaction of a first-time manager. Do not do that. Uh, so yeah. it really uh-huh. just at least kind of gave me a test, a, a taste of, look, there is, this is a, this is an entirely new and, uh, you know, well-researched and still ongoing uh, discipline of its own. And just because you were a good engineer does not make you a good manager. You know, you're at the beginning of that road. Hello, here. <laughs> Used to being an expert and you're not anymore. That's right. Yeah. But so well, how, in this process, how, uh, what what has been the hardest lesson that you've had to learn or the most embarrassing lesson? Uh, I think all under the umbrella that I have to change before anything. I mean, I had to learn that, you know, other people are not like me. Therefore, I had to adapt myself to their style. Uh, mm. You know, a lot of the mistakes I made early on was because I wasn't flexible. I knew one way of doing things, and uh, I, I learned again through. So, so, situational leadership had that lesson for me. Like, you, you, know, you can't treat a junior the way you would treat a uh, a principal engineer. They're completely different color codes. Some people like very. Uh, direct feedback, you know, the radical kind of candor type in your face uh, feedback. And some people would be absolutely horrified if you talk to them like that. So I realized the first thing I have to do is I have to change myself. Then I can go and talk to different types of people. And that's, that's probably been the biggest and ongoing because I still need to, to learn the different ways. And uh, yeah. Is there a difference there? I mean, I, you know, like I, I feel like we're getting all the profound thoughts into one episode here. This is, this is really great. Like already, this is like hilariously good to me. Just, just these lessons that you've learned and also how well you can articulate them. But the, uh, you know, I mean, is this one of the profound differences between working with computers and working with humans is, you know, do you have to change yourself to work with computers? Is it is it just, uh, I mean, does changing yourself make you more effective with computers? Or is it just a, when people are the thing that you're working on, you have to turn inward and become introspective to be successful? I'd say it's on the same continuum because uh, we've had uh, you know, previous jobs, sort of uh, high school students visit and so on. One of the first things I tell them is I say, you know, imagine if you visit a country and you don't speak a word of the uh, of, of the language of, that they speak, uh, it's going to be difficult for you to do to get anywhere. Now, 
in the future, and I really we are there right, right now, is we have enough devices on this planet that outnumber us, and they're computers, and they speak a particular uh, language, or you could say that a particular way of doing things. And so no matter what your field is, uh, you know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, it doesn't matter. You've got these inhabitants on Earth, computers, that speak their own language in a way. So at least you should be able to learn the basics. Hello, you know, where's the hotel? How do I find a bathroom equivalent of talking to computers? So in that sense, even talking to computers involves us changing and learning their language, which what any really software developer does is to say, oh, I can't just ask the computer this. I have to break it down in a series of, you know, very explicitly logical steps. Then the computer will be able to understand what I, uh, what I wanted. Yeah, the way now, that humans are much more complex. That's right. Yeah, and you're probably. I mean, it's probably a false dichotomy to say that if you're an individual contributor, you're not working with humans. You you almost always are, unless you're sitting in your room, you know, hacking on something uh, all by yourself with no outside input, which is not you know most jobs. Um, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So it is, it is a continuum in that sense So talk, you know, to be effective with computers, you need to learn their way of communicating. If your job and most, most of our jobs do involve, uh, talking to other humans. Well, there's a lot of variability between, between the uh, humans. So we need to learn how, how they each work, which all sort of comes back to changing, uh, sort of myself to be able to make that connection. So it's almost like the connection, there's, uh, it's two-way. I've got to build the bridge halfway, at least on my side, and then I have a chance to connect to the other side. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and how, you know, how far you build that bridge depends on the situation as well and, you know, the context of the other person. And I, I found myself, so this is a, a lesson that I learned in my early days as a tech writer. Uh, when you're a tech writer and you're trying to advocate for the users, um, you're, you're talking to a lot of people, you're asking a lot of questions of engineers, you're taking their time. Um, and uh, I always, you know, I always wondered what, uh, what it is I need to do to be the most effective at asking these questions. And what it ended up being is I, I kind of made this table of like, here are the different kinds of engineers that I will speak to. And here are the things that uh, work best for extracting information from each of them. Like this person wants me to take them to lunch. This person wants me to, uh, you know, have a list of questions and take as little time as possible. This person wants me to talk to them about their family first. Like it's different for every person and you can be pretty, uh, you know, organized about uh, or, or uh, uh, structured about the way that you approach it. Uh, did you ever find yourself coming up with a sort of like, here's a categories of people that I will typically encounter? <laughs> Uh, or, or I guess, I guess conversely for me, it was what are the types of uh, uh, things I need to cultivate in myself mm -hmm. for it to make a connection. So, uh, for this type of person, like you know, like I said, I need to start much more on the empathetic uh, uh, domain, and then the connection will be made. With this type of person, I need to be, you know, much more focused on data, facts. To them, emotions are totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm or at least they think that way. So at least I need to sort of approach it. Even something as simple as I remember, again, my, my, my first leadership job, realizing that one person on my team absolutely hated if I asked him, how do you feel about this problem? <laughs> oh yeah. He was a principal engineer. He was extremely data-driven and he was quite actually emotional once I got to know, know him, but 
it was it was a, a keyword that I just had to replace. And instead of asking him, so how do you feel about this I don't know, problem or architecture or something? And you said, well, how do you think about this problem? All of a sudden, he was relaxed and, and so on. There's just that tiny bit of, okay, this person would like to operate purely on, a, on an intellectual level. Zero emotion should be up front. Yeah. Great. Now that I know that, right. I, I need to cultivate that in myself so that I can make a connection. Yeah, yeah. It's like yeah. noticing the patterns. No people yeah. that are like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so what's a, what's a leadership issue that you're dealing with right now or thinking about right now? Is there something that's top of mind that's particularly difficult for you or, or maybe even obvious how to address it, but you haven't gotten around to addressing it? Or what's, what are you thinking about these days? Uh, the thing top of mind right now is the concept of uh, managing healthy tensions, that there are certain, uh, again, components, groups that have uh, maybe different characteristics and to have the most sort of optimum and happy uh, outcome is actually both uh, systems being a little bit in tension with each other. I can think of, for example, again, based on my current position between sales and R&D. They just have different goals, different uh, sort of characteristics, different people that are attracted to those roles. And so if things are kind of way too on the R&D side, we end up creating something that sales cannot sell. If we are way too uh, gravitating towards uh, the sales side, we keep making these short-term decisions uh, that at the end end up uh, creating a huge technical debt, et cetera, et cetera. So, the idea that there should be a tension, R&D should feel tension from sales side to actually deliver, and sales side should feel a tension from R&D to pull them back and to address some technical debt is something that I'm, uh, is again, top of mind because it's an everyday part of my job. And it's uh, what I don't know is when do I know uh, that this tension is healthy? Mm-hmm. Uh, is it, do I look for complacency? That's when I know tension isn't there. Is it all based on outcomes? Is it something that I'm sort of grappling with? Is how do I know that uh, I'm providing that tension, that I'm living that healthy tension uh, without too much of it on either side and without complacency? Oh, that's super And how do you make others involved with it comfortable with that tension? You know, that it's it's common for engineering and sales to be screaming at each other or, you know, these other things where it, 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 there is tension and we need that tension, but the tension as it stands is not a healthy tension. Right. Like how like much of it can you resolve? Places where that can be. Yeah. <laughs> Safely resolve. And a lot of that is communication, right? I get, I, I, I do wonder like, is this, is this tension necessary or is it just, that's how it is uh, because of the ways of things like how sales are, are, are motivated and how, um, you know, how, how R and D sees a larger picture perhaps, uh, some of this can be resolved by communication, um, but if if the circumstances were changed, if sales were were somehow you know paid in another way, uh, would they feel the same way? Uh, it, it's you know lots of people have tried experimentation with sales that way, and I'm I'm curious if that's anything you have access to. No, I'm I'm new to this to this role. This is my first out of R and D role, and I'm stuck at the first level that you mentioned, which is communication. <laughs> is can I talk to the engineers in such a way that uh, they understand at least the motivation behind uh, sort of the feature we just sold the customer and the urgency, right. and vice versa. Can I talk to sales in such a way that they understand they will make the, the sale, they will make their commissions, 
Uh, and the way we're doing it is going to ensure that they will have further business and not just the one-time thing. So I'm sort of stuck right. at the first level, which is, can I provide that communication in between the two groups? Uh, I think some of what you're alluding to is maybe next level uh, <laughs> optimization. <laughs> well, and how, how are you talking to them? I mean, what are you, what are you saying to sales and what are you saying to engineering in order for them to, you know, are you saying things like, hey, this is going to be a tension. You need to be comfortable with the tension. Or are you saying something else? Uh, this actually has been helpful to say, uh, as I've, I've said in situations where it's been very uncomfortable to say, you know, part of this tension is completely normal. It's okay. The other part, this is now too much tension. Okay, let's let's talk about that. Let's you know, let's see what we can do. Uh, but again, part of it has just been communicating. There should be tension. There is a degree of tension that is healthy, and beyond that, it's toxic. Yeah. And you need to just have the communication lines open and, and, and have uh, basically a safety where somebody can say, look, this tension might be okay for my team, but as an individual, this is too much. I feel too much sort of threatened by the, uh, the messaging that I'm getting. Okay, good. Now we can uh, sort of adjust and, and, and go That's from the there. That's the line, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I yeah, this is great. super interesting. I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm impressed that a company would have, you know, have the, the foresight to hire someone into a role that to address these things. Because usually, you end up with, you know, sales is like, oh, the engineering doesn't care about us and they don't understand what the real world is like because they don't talk to customers. And then the engineering side is like sales guys are coin operated and they don't, you know, they don't understand that we have a system to keep stable and we need to, uh, you know, in order for them to succeed in the future, we need them to compromise with us now. Uh, you, you often end up in a situation where it's just always like that and you don't have a positive outcome. So I, I have a lot of uh, hope for uh, your organization that they're thinking about things like this, or is it just you who's like, I think this is an important thing to study and figure out. Uh, I think one theme that now that I'm talking to you both, you're making me reflect on, on the past is that uh, uh, one common theme of a lot of companies, actually, now that I think about it, maybe every single company that's hired me is they've taken a big chance on me on and, and giving me a position where on paper, uh, or at least initially, I was act I am actually uh, unqualified mm -hmm. for. So the current job I have, I've been saying it in meetings and so on and say, look, you know, part of this job, I'm actually not qualified to do. Uh, I am a, you know, r and I've got, again, my education is all technical, and yet I'm supposed to sit here and straddle the, the, the two lines. And many of the, uh, you know, the, I mentioned the management job, sort of showing up and saying, okay, I'll be the manager of software with zero experience. And the, and the company saying, you know what, we'll take a chance on you and, and go from there. So I do have a tendency to take on jobs that I'm, very unqualified for, which is both exciting and, and terrifying at the same time. And I guess also being, you know, attracted to companies that are willing to take that, sh that, that chance. So, um, yeah, I don't know what that says about me or the company, but that's been, that's been the match, uh, uh, statistics. Well, I don't get the impression that you're unqualified <laughs> for this role, especially given the things that you're, you know, you're, they're think you're trying to approach what you've had now, some management experience, you've, uh, you know, you've definitely got the perspective of the R and D team and you're, you know, you're clearly thoughtful enough to now expand to understand the perspective of the sales team. doesn't sound underqualified to me, but you know, 
I'm <laughs> I'm just one person. I know. But you're the first person in history to feel imposter syndrome. Oh yeah, probably, absolutely. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, so the question we ask everybody on this is, you know, this is authority issues, and we want to know. Talk about your relationship with authority. How do you feel about having authority over other people, and how do you feel about them having authority over you? In terms of having uh, authority over others, uh, I have to say that's an evolving uh, story. I, I still can't pin down exactly how I feel about it. I mean, I started as thinking that servant leadership was, that was it. That's, oh, if I could just be like that, uh, it would it would be the be all and end all. And I kind of realized that has limited applicability. Really? Um, and so, uh, yeah, more. in the sense that there, yeah, so on, the, the way I understood that is that uh, within certain groups, uh, they do need uh, maybe uh, sort of a way to frame that as the way to be a servant leader would be to be much more of a, a command and control uh, leader, because that is what they want. That is what they need. Uh, I have been in situations where uh, you know these would be more junior members of the team. They really needed someone to tell them what to do, how to do it, and not be given a lot of... Uh, sort of you know, open field to go and uh, play. They really, really needed that. And for me, maybe it was my misunderstanding of servant leadership that, oh, you know, it's more, I'm here for you. If you need me, I'll just remove obstacles. Uh, for those teams, I realized, you know what? Uh, removing obstacles is about being there day-to-day -day with them uh, every step of the way. And even sometimes they're directly saying, this is how you should do it, just because that's, that's so what they need. So an expanded uh, definition of servant leadership. It's all based in what the what the team needs so yeah 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 that's right so if i expand it to say it's whatever the team needs then yes it still fits but let's say my original understanding mm -hmm. uh was was maybe too narrow in mm -hmm. that sense so how i feel about it i'd say it's an evolving uh story i i feel conflicted in some ways and and i just feel that i, I need to be flexible in terms of how i approach it uh depending on the team the person and even the company uh, culture, whatever worked in one company does not really translate into, into other. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you have a sense of where I am with authority uh, over me. Uh, I think when it's unreasonable, <laughs> I, <laughs> I find another <laughs> way. Uh, <laughs> I, I was going to say the, uh, the, I mean, so being flexible in it, I think is a, is a key thing. And you've talked about that repeatedly through this. I also think, uh, you know, give it five years and you'll have it all figured out, right? <laughs> you, don't, you don't need to be flexible. Oh, Kendall. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that's, so yeah, you're that's still really to this day. I mean, you know, you obviously have a boss in your current role. Um, how do you, how do you feel about that? How do you prefer to be told what to do? So that's, it's, it's a really interesting situation I'm in now because there's a section of my work where I feel very, very confident. And I would say I'm, I'm, completely competent at doing. And that's the side of dealing with the R&D side, just because that's my background. I know I know how to speak that language. I understand uh, the architecture. And so in in, in that area, uh, you know, we have a, system, I have a system with my boss where he just expects outcome and the rest is all up to me, how I get there and so on. So I have complete autonomy because in some ways I have uh, the competency to, to, to produce that. On the other side, which is marketing and sales, I'm a complete noob. I mean, I, you know, he will say something like, ah, oh, you don't need to update the price list. 
And also to just look at him, <laughs> I have no idea what a price list is. And so he will walk me through, you know, this is what it is. This is where you look, you know, and don't worry, don't panic, right? Because you're, I can see you're panicking, Mustafa. Don't panic. I got this. All you have to do, again, that idea of like, for some people, servant leadership is, you got it. I just provide some encouragement for others. It's here's a step-by-step guide of how you go through he does a wonderful job of saying, you know what, don't panic about this priceless stuff. We're talking to the salesperson. All you have to do is this tiny little bit. And once you learn that, I'll teach you the next the next bit. So he has to wear this two sort of two pronged uh, approach uh, with me on the one hand, letting me be and the other one uh, almost spoon feeding me what I have to do on the on the sales side. And I'm, and I'm OK with that because that's where I'm well, learning sounds the most. Great. Your boss sounds super cool. Oh. Yeah. How much of your flexibility and leadership and your boss's competence, I mean, just the, some of these stories feel to me like astounding self-awareness, astounding kindness, you know, even like getting leadership training. Like there's, you may be the first person on this podcast that has talked to us about your formal, maybe there's one more, you know, who's had this formalized leadership training. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's not many, how much of that is, and maybe the answer is none, but how much of that is cultural being in Canada (laughs) and people just being kind maybe over some of the other, like, I don't know, you know, it's a totally stereotypical, but I'm curious (laughs) if you feel like that's really. I, I, I don't know. I mean, uh, I've, dealt with a, a lot of people from, from the U.S. and there's equal kindness there. Um, we are a little bit more maybe overly polite on this side, which, uh, to be honest, um, on some things like getting some things done and when it's required, that having that candor to be able to call something what it is, we lack that. And that can sometimes be uh, a good thing because we seem to get along uh, quite well. But at the same time, on some business fronts, we fall behind because we are almost too nice to really yeah. say, okay, look, you know, I respect everyone, but we have a problem here hmm. and we let oh, yeah. fester a bit. Uh, but in terms of, yeah, so I, I'd say it's like a weird, a double-edged sword. Sure. Um, uh, but I wouldn't say, you know, Canadians are any more kind than Americans or any, really any other nation. Maybe the way it's manifested is a little bit different sure. depending on the person, but at the core it's, uh, yeah, I, I I I wouldn't I would I would definitely not assert that Canadians or any other nation are, are kinder. <laughs> We're just having a hard time right well, now. I still, you know. <laughs> yeah. Well. I, <laughs> uh, wow. This is not a politics no, podcast. It is not. Rachel. Um. No. 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 But it's. Uh. I thank you for indulging me even in that question. So I want. I actually, um, Kendall. Before you before we move on, Kendall, because I wanted to. I want to. I want to. Um. Mention something to Mushtaba. Like I. From the sounds of things, this 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 gig you have right now, where you're learning about various other aspects of the business, seemed like a really great way to set yourself up for future executive leadership role. So hopefully you're thinking about that. Uh, and without, I won't I won't ask you for a response to that. Uh, but uh, Kendall, what were you going to ask? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say as we as we get close to to time here, we we do want to turn just towards a little bit about your life outside of work. I mean, tell us a little bit about what you do when you're not working, uh, hobbies or or however you fill your time. Uh, on the activity side, in, in in Canada, at least this part of uh, this part of Canada, if you don't have some winter activities for five or six months of the year, things get a bit bleak. So 
Uh, I mean, I'm just snowboarding and skating. Let's say I'm, I can get from A to B, uh, but I won't be able to do it backwards. I, I'm hoping that uh, uh, my, my, my daughter is, is kind of being set up to, to learn at an earlier age than I did. So I, I, I started skating when I was a bit uh, too old to... Uh, you mean ice skating? I'm sorry, that's right, ice skating, okay. yes. <laughs> so um, you're not going to be joining a hockey league anytime? I, Oh, I, you know what? I, I would love that. I, one day it's one of those dreams that I, I think may come true one day where I find the lowest level Canadian league, you know, that allows people to play with absolute zero skill. And I think, I think then I can truly say I have made it. (laughs) I can play hockey. I've played in one of those leagues and fallen down a lot and failed to ever score and can't, I can't stop like you're supposed to, you know, I can't hockey stop. So if it makes you feel any better, I mean, even every hockey player starts somewhere where they're terrible. Uh I did that in adulthood. I just have to join your your team, Kendall. I just have to join your team. I want video of that. No, I did it once. And I never went back. <laughs> See, but at least we know this exists. So you'll just have to keep an eye out in your right. in your area. So, so you winter winter right. sports, and uh, what 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 and when it's awful outside and you can't go outside. Uh, so I I have, I have a family. I'm married, and I've got two small kids, and they do uh, especially the kids. They, they take up a lot of time. I've heard so that. If we're in, indoor. <laughs> uh, I, so I I just love playing with uh, with kids. It's it's the most amazing thing after a day at work coming coming home and having people that are in a completely different world and they are living in the moment. There is no strategy plan for the next year. There's no post mortem uh, of what happened in the last project. It is right now. You know we are happy and we are running or we are sad and it's this particular moment that is the wow. most important thing in the world just find that so refreshing coming from a, a full day of strategic thinking. Okay. This quarter, this year, three years from now you get, you know, you get together with a three-year-old and all she cares about is this moment. I, I want that cookie. And I'm yeah. like, great. That is amazing. Great. Your goals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Your goals are clear. You've communicated them that to, 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 to very clearly. There is no strategy. There is no postmortem of, of you not getting a cookie yesterday. <laughs> Just right now, you want a cookie. I can right. deal with this. This is <laughs> that is fantastic. Oh man! So it sounds like yeah. becoming a leader has affected your your personal life in the sense that you want to come home and not deal with that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, would Would you say that it's uh, becoming a leader and learning, um, you know, go, going through training and learning about you know, having difficult conversations and so on? Uh, has that affected your life outside of work? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the yeah. amount the the amount I have had to to change myself to be a more uh, flexible person, and just to be able to walk in other people's shoes, I think that has been uh, it's it's one of those weird circles. Any any growth I have had on the personal side has helped me be a, a better leader, and you know whether it was adversity at uh, some personal problems at uh, uh, outside of work that has made me a better leader. And any time at work I have been pushed and challenged, I feel that I kind of go home with a different perspective and I can at least be a more rounded person, uh, if not necessarily a better person. So hmm. the two really feed off each other for me and it's, it's really exciting. Oh, That's a good yeah. answer. Well, so as we wrap up here, Mushtaba, where can people find you 
on the internet. Uh, before that, can I just say uh, I, I love what you do, uh, both of you. These are the, the, the podcast you do. I'm, I'm very honored that you. Uh, I, I was just so surprised that you asked me because I'm, I'm I'm a nobody really, and a lot of your other uh, other guests are somebodies, and they have internet presence, and they have mm. you know they even have a brand and everything, right? So uh, people can Google me, of of course, and I'm on LinkedIn. But uh, I I love also how you conduct these interviews. They feel so. So personal, I feel like I'm talking to friends, which is strange because I haven't met you in person. So how you do it, I don't know the mechanism, but again, the outcome is absolutely phenomenal. Thank you for doing Aww. this. And I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, it's well, been thank wonderful you. to interview uh, you. Thanks very much. Herb. Yeah, it's, it's been really a pleasure, Mushtaba. Yeah.